Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. All right, welcome again to the Think Orphan Bible Study. This is Rick Morton. I'm the Vice President of Engagement here at Lifeline, and we are continuing our study in the book of Romans. Today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6, um, and I think everybody knows the uh, the very spectacular and very common story of the prodigal son, um, and that's kind of where we're going to start today before we jump into Romans chapter 6. Um, we know the story well, right? The younger son uh, twists his father's arm for a share of the property. He goes off. He spends his inheritance. He wastes it. Um, he comes home in, in disgrace, and he believes that his his father, you know, is is probably not going to receive him well, and has this whole speech prepared about his father treating him him as a servant, and then um, he's really, you know, blown away with the fact that his father meets him running down the road, throws him a huge party, welcomes him back as a son, um, even though he doesn't deserve it, right? I think sometimes, unfortunately, people stretch this analogy of the grace and mercy of God out of shape. They twist the truth to say, or at least they act as if um, we're under no obligation to the law and sin is as little, is really of little consequence to God. Um, you, don't, you don't believe that? Well, it, I think that's exactly what a great many people think. You know, ultimately, God will forgive me because that's his job to to forgive me. A famous philosopher, you know, actually said that. That's that's um, that's not just a common quote. Um, you know, we, we look back into history and we look at somebody like Rasputin. And, and the fact is that um, Rasputin was was speaking into the life of the Russian czar. And, and basically he said he, under the premise that we make God more glorious, but the more we sin and, and the excess of our sin makes, makes God more glorious. Well, that's just a, a very man centered, twisted way to look at, you know, to look at sin, but, and, and to look at the, 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 the character of God and even to look at the mercy and the, uh, and, and the grace of God. But I think really and truly we, we suffer today in the church from a malady that people believe really um, the only message that the church should, should proclaim is the message of forgiveness. And that really we're kind of, you know, in this posture of, well, that's fine. Just, you know, whatever um, you do, God loves you ultimately. And, and God's here to, to fix and to heal you. And it's a very therapeutic gospel. I think in chapter six, we see that Paul was really probably very tired of, of listening to the legalist and the opponents of free grace. The people who said, Hey, you can't go around saying that. And, and the people that were pointing toward, you know, some sort of a legalism based in, in, uh, in Judaism, but also, um, at, at least it's, it's also written at some level to answer that point while it's also, um, dealing with the, the peculiar problem of, of the, the fact that people were, um, we're taking God for granted. Paul does a really interesting thing through chapter six, seven, and eight of of this um, this section of Romans, where he really um, kind of recounts something according to the the storyline of the book of Exodus. And I think it's really because Exodus is just a foreshadowing of of the gospel story. 
Um, the story of Israel in Exodus is like we know it, right? Um, that you know what we what we normally see here is, or, or like what we see is that Paul is pointing out that in, in chapter six, how how Christians come through uh, come through the water of baptism, like the Red Sea, live live leave behind the the slavery of sin and and come into new freedom and into the promised land just like God brought Israel and Egypt into the promised land but our promised land is ultimately um that life in Christ and life with Christ so you know why does Paul do that why does he use this kind of common understanding of of the exodus to to point this out to the people well i think there are really kind of three reasons one he he is um he's telling us um that that he has not forgotten he's not forgotten that god has accomplished in jesus what he made promises to abraham about um all the way back in the book of genesis that chapter six seven and eight of romans are his way of saying this is what god was really completely promising to abraham Second thing is that um, a lot of Jews in Paul's day were looking for a political revolutionary, right? They were looking, they were thinking of the terms of the new Exodus in the fact that God was going to create, um, you know, an Israel that would be f- freed from oppression. And, and Paul, you know, says ultimately that's true, but the oppression that Israel is going to be freed from is the oppression that the, the oppression that we're all able to be freed from in, um, in, in, ultimately uh, taking part in the work of Jesus and ultimately um, the, the freedom and the liberation that's going to come for all of us from the corruption of, of, of sin and from the death that sin causes. And then third, um, he, he's ultimately very deliberately highlighting that what God has done through Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. Um, it, it's it's not like God has forgotten, kind of moved on from Israel, and but but they are still they are still His chosen people, and they are they are His chosen people who accomplished His chosen purpose, which is to bring the Messiah forth. So, um, so Paul begins uh, Romans chapter six with kind of this extraordinary question, right? So, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning? Um, and and he, you know, his. Uh, his answer is that ultimately becoming a Christian, it, that, that we really move from one type of humanity to another, that we move out of one mode into another, um, and that, that when we have, that when we are in Christ, we have died to our old self and that we are, that we are, they are we are rising again, um, united in Christ and united with Christ. That our baptism, and I don't think he's necessarily talking about water baptism here completely. I think he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that, that baptism marks a change in status. Uh, you know, I think a great example for this is, is like when someone gets married, ultimately, um, you know, we, we change our last name. If you're a lady, right? If, if you're a man, you know, you don't, but, but like we, that a lot of things change legally about us, but, but the truth is that, you know, that the day that we wake up married, uh, you know, the first day that we wake up as husband and wife, we may not really feel all that different, but a major change has occurred. And it's a change that causes us to now conform to, to the image of that new self. And, and in so, so much of a greater way, that's what's happening when we come to Christ. We, we ultimately are to strain toward holiness. Why? Um, 
because we are in Christ, because our identity has changed, because we're a new creation. Um, verses six through 11 of this chapter, Paul helps us to understand that we are a new creation. He talks about this, you know, the, like we get this idea that the old Adam is dead. And although we still sin, we are not dead and we are not enslaved to sin. We are set free. And, and ultimately we have the promise that one day we will be set free from this present reality, from the presence of sin, and we will be freed from sinning ourselves. Uh, but our death to sin is is a reality that ultimately we may struggle to feel and to walk out, but we must remember that we are dead to sin today and we are alive to Christ today. N.T. Wright gives a great illustration of this in his, his book, Paul is for Everyone. And he, he says this in telling a story to give an example of that reality. He says, imagine renting a house from a landlord who turns out to be a bully, always demanding extra payments, coming into the house without asking, threatening you with legal action or violence if you don't give in to his demands. You get used to what, to, to doing what he says out of fear. There doesn't seem to be any way out, but then to your relief, you find somewhere else to live. Someone else pays off your remaining rent and you can leave. You move out and settle in the new place. But to your horror, a few days later, the old landlord shows up at the door and barges into the house. He is angry and demands more money. He threatens you to take you to court. The old habit returns. You are strongly um, tempted to pay him what he demands just to get him to leave. But you know that you're not his tenant anymore. You've seen the paperwork. The final bill was paid. Nothing more is owing. Trembling, you get up and tell him to leave. He has no claim over you, depending on how unpleasant a character the landlord is. You may or may not have to call the police, but but Paul's appeal in verse 11 is exactly like that. We have to remind ourselves that the paperwork, um, uh, the, 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 the paperwork ultimately of our sin has been, has been settled, that the, the debt has been paid. We have to remember who we really are and not give in to the voices, um, that tell you, that tell you and tell me that we're still in Adam and should be behaving like we used to. Resisting temptation isn't a matter of pretending you wouldn't find it easier to give in. Uh, Wright says it's a matter of learning to think straight and to act on what you know to be true. So that if we continue down in, in verses six through 12, another, another illustration from Wright that kind of extends on this first idea. He says, imagine that I'm a small holder living out in the countryside about a thousand years ago. My little farm sits on the border between two great estates, and for years, the lord of the manor in whose land I actually live has had me completely under his thumb. In particular, whenever he has wanted to fight a war or even a local skirmish, he's called me out to join up and to fight on his side and has threatened me with all sorts of unpleasant things, like burning my house down, for instance, if I don't come along. What's more, he has more than once made me get all my farm implements, nice peaceful things like hoes and spades, and take them down to the blacksmith to make them into swords and shields. So off we go to fight his wars when when I really ought to be looking after the farm. Well, eventually I saw the light and moved just across the river onto the other great estate. We built a new house, brought all our stuff across and settled down. Fortunately, my old landlord was away at the time, or he'd have tried to stop me. The noble lord who owns the land where I now live gave us a wonderful welcome and charges us a lot less rent than the other one. From time to time, my old boss has come down and threatened to send his henchmen across and do, yes, all sorts of unpleasant things to me once more. But I secretly think he's afraid of me and my new landlord. I get on with my work and look after the farm and my new master gets me help with it, 
gets me help to help with his work, which is quite different from the battles of my old boss, used to drag me into my new master's building schools and hospitals, especially for the really poor people. And sometimes he asked me to bring my tools and to help in the work. And if someone in special need, if someone's in special need, a death in the family, a fire, animal, sick, whatever, he asked me to help out in this way or that. Sometimes, of course, it's an effort, but I'm glad to do it, especially for him. Becoming a Christian, ultimately, friend, is is a, is a re- recognizing that we have a change in master and that we have a change, ultimately, in the economy of all things. The gospel isn't just a new way of being religious. It's a radical call to join God's mission on his terms. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us here in this sixth chapter of Romans. Verses 15 through 19, we... Um, we, you know, we, we kind of talk about this, this, Paul talks about this difference between, uh, life and death. And, and, and he really kind of presents, presents the idea that before we were in Christ, we expended a lot of energy chasing our appetites and our passions apart from Christ. Paul is calling us to devote that energy and all the resources to following Christ and to extending God's covenant purposes to the rest of the world. Paul basically is contrasting and saying that there are two kinds of, of slavery. One is a slavery to sin and that all of us have been there. But in Christ, those of us that are walking with Jesus, that we're no longer slaves to sin, we are ultimately slaves to Christ. Freedom in Christ is a little like passing your driver's test. You're free to drive anywhere you want, but you're released into the world, into a world of structure and rules meant to ensure the wise exercise of freedom. And so why have we been given the law? One, because it convicts us of how we're not like God and how we break the, 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 the heart of God. But then second, the, the law helps us that once we're in Christ to give us an ability to understand what it is, what it is, what it means to please God. And it gives us something to strive toward. Romans, if we finish out in, in verses 20 through 23, I think we can say about this section that the rules and the guidelines for Christian living that we have are, are not there because God likes to, to basically squish and conform people into a particular shape that's not good for us and will not make us happy. Ultimately, the rules and 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 the law of God is there because they are the rules of the road, um, and it really matters what road we take. And so as we follow Jesus, God is graciously showing us um, how to walk. But then he reminds us, um, Paul does in, in Romans 6.23, that that ultimately we are set free by Christ and by his work and by the gospel and that the gospel, that life in Christ is ultimately a free gift. It's not bought, it's not purchased with our obedience, but it's purchased by the blood of Jesus, but that God uses um, uses the transformation that, that occurs in us because of our faith in Christ ultimately to change us and, and to cause us and to give us the ability to do good works, which please him, uh, and, and which ultimately are, are a great act of worship to him. So I hope this has been helpful to you today. We thank you for continuing to join with us in our study of the book of Romans. And we look forward to next week uh, when you'll join to join us again for our study as we uh, as we dive into chapter seven of the book of Romans. Pray, pray that God blesses you uh, this week. And uh, and, and again, uh, if we can be at all of help to you, um, pre- please reach out to us. Our website is lifelinechild.org. You could reach out to the to the email address info at lifelinechild.org. 
We'd love to hear from you and, uh, and we thank you. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.